From Los Angeles, California, this is Burncast, and I'm Astari. Happy 2-2 Tuesday, and welcome to the show. My name is Astari, and I'm today's host. In this episode, which is part one of a two-part series, we speak to Brian Doherty, author of This is Burning Man. Burncast met up with Doherty on January 28, 2007, at his home in Hollywood, California. Before we begin with Brian, let's start with the Burncast Community Bulletin Board. Okay, first up is an announcement to invite our listeners to stick a pin in our new Frapper map and help us start spreading the flames about the art, culture, and community of Burning Man. Click on the Frapper Map tab at our website, burncast.net. And second up, Burncast received a message from a caller in North Carolina who left us this message. Hey, The Bomb. This is Red from North Carolina. Um, in 2007 will be my fourth burn in the past three years. And uh, I'm a little behind on Burncast. I just got through listening to episode 27, Fire and Ice, and... Listening to the temple burn and seeing the embedded pictures, I just wanted to tell you how I felt. The temple, I uh, I love the temple so much that I hate it. Um, I don't know if it's that it brings uh, brings up feelings I just haven't addressed all year, but uh, every year I go to Burning Man, I look forward to the temple because it refreshes me, it drains me, it takes me places I haven't been and makes me visit those places and think more about myself and anyway i really wanted to thank you for your burn gas because being able to visit the temple in the middle of february is pretty amazing i'm six seven what nine months off eight months off from being back in the desert but uh i'm able to kind of relive it through your burn cast so thank you i appreciate it keep up the good work uh i'll see you on the playa bye Thanks so much for calling in, Red, and for leaving us such nice sentiments. I'm glad you felt moved enough to contact us about it. If you would like to contact us like Red did, frankly, we'd be delighted. There are three ways you can contact us. Number one, call the Burncast hotline at 206-350-1460. Number two, leave a message by clicking on the My Chingo button, which is an audio recorder that is embedded in our website at burncast.net. Or number three, leave us an email at burncast at gmail.com. We'll wrap up the Burncast Community Bulletin Board by reminding our listeners that Burncast is a non-commercial podcast that is entirely free to download. But we do have specific needs and significant expenses. If you're listening to this podcast and you're enjoying it, we ask that you please participate by any means possible. We currently have need of one gig Sony HiMD diskettes, which will totally help us out with future field recordings at Burning Man 2007. If you would like to support us, please click on the support tab at our website, burncast.net. Let's move on to today's episode, part one of a two-parter. Today, DeBaum and Chai Guy meet and speak with Brian Doherty, author of the book, This is Burning Man. In part one, Brian talks about the early days of the event. If you're playing the three-ply community drinking game at home, please note that we changed the rules slightly in this round, and we highly recommend playing this game by cracking open a fresh cold beer, such as they did for the show. That's it. Here's our interview with Brian Doherty. Let's roll. My guest today is Brian Doherty. 
He's senior editor for Reason Magazine. He's author of This is Burning Man, which first came out in hardcover on Little Brown Hardback. Mm-hmm. In August of 2004. And now it's on Ben Bella. Yeah, Ben Bella paperback. issued the paperback <laughs> that came out last summer. Yes. Cool. Your latest book is Radicals for Capitalism, a freewheeling history of the modern American libertarian movement coming out in... That, um, uh, we're in my living room, not to bust the illusion, and you guys appreciate <laughs> that it already does exist. I have copies of it on my shelf, but it is not yet officially for sale. It will be in mid-February. Okay, very good. Well, we're looking forward to that. Thanks for coming to the show. Welcome. <laughs> I'm very glad to be here. Yes, thank you for having us in your living room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so today we're going to be playing the three-playa community drinking game. Do you know what that is? Uh, I do not. Tell okay. Me. It's a game where um, it's on three playa. Mm-hmm. It's a bulletin board. You want to talk about what three playa is real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, three playa is basically just a, it's an online message board, uh, really stripped down, very simple, created by a, a longtime burner known as Trey Ghosh. Mm-hmm. And it's just a place where people come and discuss uh, many things, but among them, uh, Burning Man. And so they found on, the, on this message board that people were using the word community so much that <laughs> they should incorporate that into a drinking game, that whenever anyone says the word community, that people should drink, and they would they would type drink after any time mm-hmm. anyone used the word community. So whenever anyone on the burn cash show says four community, shots behind five shots, right? Well, yeah, oh, right. We, we haven't started yet. We haven't started yet. yet. But, but we also thought that we might. Um, we also thought as a, a kind of a twist on the show that we, maybe if you have a favorite word, we can incorporate that as well. So it'll be community and then yeah. your word. That is absolutely the best uh, drinking game word for Burning Man community. Yes, for sure. Uh, given what I think we'll probably end up talking about, uh, the word brand might uh, brand. Okay, so community and brand are our two words. Okay, cool. All right. In reading your blog, you say Burning Man is something easier to write about intelligently than to speak about. And then you go on to say, I find, but I'm prepared to make an entertaining song and dance routine out of it in any context I need to. (laughs) Where did I say that? You said in your blog. Really? (laughs) That sounds like me. I don't remember. I said that publicly. Wow. Yeah, it's true. So are you ready to talk about Burning Man and make a song and dance out of it? I'm ready to do my best. Woohoo. Okay. Okay. Way better at at the writing than the talking, but um, I think you guys will bring that together. Okay. (laughs) So let's get to know you and let our audience get to know you. When was your first year at Burning Man? 1995. Okay. And how did you first hear about Burning Man? I first heard about it and had the first opportunity to go in 94, but I was scared. The the Burning Man propaganda, such as it was back then, really sold the, this is the most dangerous thing you could ever do in your life, and you're going to become bleached skeleton out in the trackless wasteland if you make the slightest mistake, and... uh, I'd never been a very physical guy, you know, I'm a writer and a reader and a record collector and I sit at desks all day and it it sounded too tough for me. 94, I knew a bunch of people who went, I'd been hanging out with the LA Cacophony Society. Are you a cacophonist? I am, yes. I had a I had a ready, supportive community that I could have gone with, but I was totally chicken. But then when I heard more about it directly from them as opposed to just reading the scary pamphlets, <laughs> I did realize that I, I definitely have to go. The political guy in me was intrigued, because back then, before community became Here we go. the uh, the byword. Right, it was kind of more about anarchy. They really did sell, and it really was true, that it was a, a, a almost entirely lawless environment. There were already some police there from uh, Washaw and uh, 
and Persian okay. counties, but not many, and they really just mostly kind of wandered around uh, looking. So uh, I'm a dedicated libertarian, as in my new book, and the whole notion of living in this community uh, without imposed... Oh, oh man. <laughs> that wasn't even intentional. Uh, to be free really was attractive to me, and... Um, there was a zine I wrote for called Ben is Dead. Uh, the editor of that, Darby Romeo, was going, and she encouraged me to go and be in her camp. And we were, I was actually in center camp my first year at Burning Man, and we did... Everything was a lot less big back then, from the art to, to the camps. I mean, we were a theme camp in center camp, and it was extremely slapdash. Like, anyone would be embarrassed to have a camp like this nowadays. It's a sort of attempt to create, what the hell do we call it? Shangri-la-di-da. Uh, a, uh, a Flintstones joke, I believe. And we just tried to create this sort of, like, watery oasis. And we brought, like, a whole swimming pool of water. Like, 40 gallons. Uh, and had some trees and a bubble machine. But it was... It, everything then looked kind of impressive and interesting. Because it was against this backdrop that was a lot more vast than it feels like now because you were way out in the middle of nowhere. What what, what were y'all's first years? 98. So, 98. Okay, so it was already kind of real pretty close to Gerlach. In fact, in 98, as I recall, it was really close to Gerlach. Yeah. Closer than it even yeah. is now. Yeah. They could probably hear us in 98. But this was the the last couple of years of out in the trackless wasteland, so um, even the little things seemed impressive. That was my first year. I, I don't know how much more of my own history you want me to go through and, and I loved it and uh, and I um, kept going and uh, it didn't even occur to me that I would ever though I was already a professional journalist it did not occur to me at all that I would ever want is not the right word because uh, I instantly wanted to write about it and I wrote about it in personal diary things but it also had a vibe uh, back then that I've totally driven out of my soul that this is like our secret you know, we, we don't want the world to know. It felt somehow like it would be a betrayal of my new community to uh, write about it. And by 99, I'd gotten over that. I had watched it grow. I watched it nearly double from 95 to 99, from like 4,000 to eight to 10,000 people. I had seen that media was doing things there and was not, to my mind, ruining anything. And I felt, hey, I actually felt like I understood it pretty well from the inside. I was not coming to it as... A journalist looking for a story. I was an organic, uh, you know, part of the community. Community. You're more like a historian. That's the way I see it. Um, so I felt okay about writing about it by then, and in fact, I no longer really recall why it struck me as weird in the first place. Though I did run into a lot of people when I was writing the book who still think the notion of writing about it is weird and still think that somehow it ought to be a secret, which actually ties in, I think, with some of the brouhaha going on today about the trademark issue, that, that people are afraid that you get this out there and the wrong element is, is going to come for the wrong reasons, which um, I'm not afraid of. With this book, you did something really amazing, something that no other journalist or media person was able to do, in that you, you took this, this event, this event that's spanning the course of 20 years, and you really covered it really well. I mean, you, you really went in-depth and in-detail, whereas everything else seems to be hippies, drugs, naked people. Yeah. That's that's what everything else does. Even even, even a lot of the, um, the, the so-called documentaries that are filmed about Burning Man by so-called burners... Mm-hmm are, you know, the topless girl riding the bike across the desert, and then you see the, the big thing burning, and it's on fire, and the yeah. explosion, and then... But there's not a lot of, kind of like, how you know, what what happens those other 51 weeks out of the year that people prepare for this one week out in the desert, and you really went into that and, and covered it really well. 
Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a partisan for the written word here. I owe it, while I've enjoyed many of the documentaries about Burning Man and have not enjoyed certainly the other ones, I, I've always felt that even at its best, uh, a you know one to two hour bit of film can't get across the why. And the why is what's important. And why people do it and what it means to them is important. And the visuals don't get that across. The visuals are inherently going to end up collapsing to just... It's visually colorful and interesting, and you see things you don't see elsewhere, whether it be fire or naked women on bicycles, and uh, that's never going to work, I think, to help people actually understand it. Where do you even start on a project like this? Um, I started in 99 is when I got the idea that I might want to write about it, but um, the book idea did not initially occur to me. My first writing about it was a, a magazine article in Reason, which ended up appearing in the February... 2000 issue because Reason's a political magazine it focused a lot on the Burning Man's uneasy relationship with the BLM authorities and the local police and that ended up being mostly what the story was about but um, I wrote a first draft of that story that was like 12,000 words long and the final version was about 5,000 words long um, I realized that I was sitting on enough material uh, to to do something longer and more extensive and it was a very, very long, difficult process. I began trying to sell the notion of a book about it right after the story appeared in early 2000. The sort of business end of how books work generally, or at least how I wanted to do it because I didn't feel like I had uh, the time to go ahead and write the whole book and then worry about the marketing of it, is uh, you write a proposal which is sort of, here's what I'm going to do, a lot of hand-waving, explaining what the book will do with a little portion of the book, and I was able to pretty much use my story as the portion. Got an agent, uh, shopped it around, complete failure, dozens and dozens of rejections. Um, My agent gave up. The general thing I discovered was that, uh, especially then, and I think still true now, people back east especially either had no idea what I was talking about or had a vague idea of what I was talking about that pretty much reduced to the hippies, drugs, fire thing, and they thought it was just this disgusting, stupid indulgence of idiots and didn't have any respect for the idea of it as either an interesting place or an interesting part of American culture or a social experiment or any of that. Didn't mean anything to them. Not very New York. Not a very New York Mm. thing. Especially not a very New York intellectual thing, which is who you're dealing with in the book business. Um, So I kind of gave up, sort of, and I guess probably by the end of 2001, I wasn't actively pursuing it anymore. Kept going, you know, kept observing. was, Was still there, still had my eyes open. I guess in 2003, still no one had done it. I still thought... It's still a great idea, damn it. It's getting more interesting. It's getting bigger. I can't believe no one thinks this is a good idea. I'm going to try again. Started fresh. New proposal. New agent. 40 more rejections. But then finally, one acceptance. Uh, To my great good fortune, it landed on the desk of a wonderful woman named Claire Smith, who worked for Little Brown. Uh, junior editor Little Brown who had just gotten back from her first Burning Man ah. so she understood and she got it and she was like the only person in the whole town who I think did uh, so it was wonderful for us that we met she has since I hope not because of me uh, left the publishing industry actually uh, shortly uh, pretty much around the time the book came out uh, she left but she guided me through it and did a wonderful job and was, like I said probably the only editor in New York who could have done a good job with the book because she actually knew what I was talking about and wasn't coming at it 
from it as an outsider. Um, so that's that's the business end of how it happened. The the real end of how it happened is once I had the contract. Um, there's a nice list of names in, in, in the acknowledgments in the back of the, I think, 110 people who I interviewed. Um, I drew, of course, on my own 10, however many years it was then, of, of experience and observation and a just sort of general understanding of what I felt was interesting about it, which to me was mostly the art. And I also admit I had I have a slight prejudice toward the big, crazy end of the art. Um, in what way? Stuff. The stuff like, say, what Chapter 7 is dedicated to, um, the Vegematic of the Apocalypse, the sort of pedal-powered rolling flamethrower, you couldn't most likely see in any other context. What was the Vegematic? The Vegematic was a sort of military-style flamethrower on these, posters is the right word, uh, installed on these really kind of crazy rusty old tractor wheels that was pedal-powered. So it was a giant pedal-powered uh, weapon that shot, you know, 100 foot of flames and in 97 in an incident that I talk about at length Where in the book. It rolled into went out, a right. rave. Yeah, the rave was a, a great end. It was an end to its evening of wanton destruction. Before <laughs> it got to the rave, it went around and ultimately with the perhaps grudging approval of the artists involved, it did burn some pieces of art. It was much more customary back then that kind of everything got set fire to because we were not as conscious of uh, of you know burn blankets and damage supply and all of that but there was there was uh, there was there was an element of of childish recklessness uh, to the old days that I will not completely wash my hands of but you do have to admit to it I mean you can see if you go out to the old sites to this day you can still tell that we were there we were not conscious there are scars super, on the Yeah, yeah. we are not super conscious then of of not uh, screwing up the playa. I think there's a fair argument to be made, which I touch on in my book, that especially given the rest of human beings' impact on the earth, that if there's a few areas of that playa ten years from now that are slightly discolored, that that's not the worst sin that mankind has committed to the earth. But um, but there you go. So I yeah I I, I was attracted to what I thought was the, the sillier, crazier, more ambitious, wild stuff. And it's also, uh, as, as people who know me would know if they read the book, there's there's probably a, a prejudicial uh, uh, skewing toward people who I had known and worked with, which uh, I I defend in, on, on the grounds that this this is these are the ones I understood. Are you talking about your fellow cacophonists? Partially, and also people, artists whose crews I'd worked on, like Jim Mason, Dandas Mann, Rosanna Semeca, like the artists who got profiled more extensively in my book, a lot of them were people who I had worked with. Um, and again, the, 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 the self-indulgent reason is they were the people I was most interested in. The sort of journalistically respectable answer is they were also the ones who I understood the most. I would know more about them than just, oh, I interviewed them for three hours. But, you know, I had spent, you know, hundreds of hours dealing with them and working with them and sweating with them and crying in the dust with them and throwing hammers at the ground in frustration and, and all of that. Can you take me back to the good old days? Can you take me back to, say, 1990 and what was so significant about that year? Sure. Um, uh, bear in mind that in speaking of 1990, I am I am speaking as a journalist, not someone who actually was there, but I did interview, I'd say, a good 
ten at least people who actually were there in 1990. 1990 was the year of two Burning Men, for one thing. Um, there was the year of the summer solstice Burning Man on Baker Beach in California, which uh, drew... People have told me numbers range from 500 to 800. Uh, if you've ever been to Baker Beach, there's this sort of natural amphitheater-like feel to it. There's sort of like this little mm-hmm. cliff overlooking it, and the the picture that was painted to me is it was, you know, like a coliseum or stadium with just like lines of people all standing up on the hill watching them raise the man. The man was already pretty much as tall as, as he is now, uh, 40 feet, though not standing on anything. Uh, so they're raising this thing. Uh, cops had already sort of caught wind of the fact that they were doing this, and uh, they had a police scanner. Uh, one of one of the, the people involved had a police scanner, so they knew when police were coming. Uh, they they actually sort of scooted away the first wave of cops who came to find out what this mob was doing. But the second wave did uh, tell them that they didn't think it was a good idea that they set a 40-foot statue on fire in the middle of this crowd on a beach. Uh, there was a, a little uh, debate between uh, a couple of factions, you could say, a couple of those factions which are fighting still to this day. Uh, the the Larry Harvey uh, faction uh, wanted to do what the cops said. They didn't they didn't want to to create any problem with the authorities. If they didn't want the statue burned, they weren't going to burn the statue. That's that is how it happened. The statue was taken down. Um, but I want to know about the other faction just for a minute. Sure. Yeah, the John Law faction. Uh, John, through his cacophony experiences, had dealt with cops a lot while doing weird things in public that cops don't like, and he had sort of gotten the Culture sense. Culture jamming. Exactly. Uh, he had sort of gotten the sense that. The cops, having come and had their said their say and left, which the cops did, that, you know what, we could just go ahead and burn this. They're not here right now. By the time they come back, we'll all be gone. It may even be that they don't really care if we do, but they just sort of had to say that. Uh, but that's not how it happened. The man was, was taken apart. He was, he was uh, put away in... Uh, parking lot that a, a friend of someone involved had control of, which... Uh, this is discussed in my book, and I, 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 it's it's going to be more accurate in my book probably than I'm saying it now. Though I hope I'm remembering this correctly. Um, but they decide maybe it, w- it wasn't a parking lot yet. It was just someone's land, and it was turned into a parking lot over the summer. Right. And the man uh, was just tossed away. So they had to rebuild the man uh, very quickly because they had decided that around Labor Day weekend they there was a place they could go and burn a 40-foot statue where it was very unlikely that any authority figure would tell them not to, uh, the Black Rock Desert, which John Law had been familiar with and various other members of San Francisco, uh, San Francisco Cacophony had been familiar with. This, this of course, is, is somewhat at the heart of, um, of the current legal troubles, which I'm sure we'll end up talking about later. Uh, John is of the belief, and I, from my talking to a lot of people involved, agree that this is probably true, that had it not been for him and for Michael Michael, who were both sort of higher-ups in San Francisco cacophony, Burning Man would never have actually moved to the Black Rock Desert and would never have become what it is today. Uh, So around Labor Day, there was the second Burning Man, in which the newly built man, which was built in a neon shop that John Law worked at, was, was actually burnt. About 80 people there. Deep, uh, deep in, uh, deep in the Black Rock uh, Desert, m- like 15 miles out there, they loved it, and they kept doing it every yeah, and year. In fact, you cite in your book the, the Cacophony newsletter called Rough Draft. You said this event is co-hosted by the Cacophony Society Burning Man Committee. 
and the Black Rock Rangers. Yeah, that's a very interesting... Uh, th- that was interesting when I saw that, because I had understood from what everyone else had told me, that there wasn't really any such thing as the Black Rock Rangers until 92. 92. And um, that is still actually the case. As near as I've been able to figure it out, that was a complete invented joke at that point in time, that there was not actually <laughs> anyone who was performing the function of the Black Rock Ranger, which, when they started performing it in 92, was was very much a, a function of saving people's lives. They were the people who would just go out all around the perimeter and look for people who had gotten lost because it was actually it was easy to not find the camp then there wasn't like a nice little graded road off of off of the the uh, whatever the heck the number of that road is the I don't even remember it's in the road the road you're on after you leave Gerlach you know you had to leave the road uh, yeah, the 447. Um, you had to leave the road. If you wanted to be a good citizen and have your ticket, you would go to where you already knew there was a little Burning Man, there'd be a trailer, or often someone just sitting over the car, where they would tell you, okay, they check your ticket and go, okay, arc that way, go X number of miles. When you go X number of miles, change your speedometer, arc yourself this many degrees, go that way, and you'll find the camp. So it was really easy to not find the camp, especially if you were trying to be a bastard and not have your ticket. Uh, so there was very much a need for people who had performed that function of going out and saving people's lives. And uh, But as near as I've been able to figure out, they didn't really start doing that until 92, but someone just invented that name in 1990 as a thing they thought sounded funny to put on the flyer. Okay, and who was the Burning Man committee? Uh, that, that would pretty much be Larry, uh, probably Nancy Phelps. Uh, you know, w- one of the, one of the things with the whole cacophony mentality was uh, just phony bullshit. You know, illusion. Uh, there was not, you know, there wasn't like we're the Burning Man committee. It was just like, well, it's these guys who run Burning Man, which at that point was mostly Larry and uh, Jerry James, his carpenter friend who. Who, who did the building of, of the first man, and, you know, whoever Larry's buddies uh, were then. So, yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't take the official-sounding rhetoric from the early days very seriously. Of course, well, it's, turned, it's all become real uh, now, but it was more of a joke then. Well, it almost kind of sounds like this was a, a cacophony zone trip, Yes, and, and they were looking for a place to burn the statue, and they right. said, oh, you know, fuck it, bring it out to the desert, and we'll, we'll burn it out there on this cacophony zone trip. Yeah, the... According to uh, John and Kevin Evans, uh, another cacophonist at the time, they had already been planning a zone trip of some sort to the Black Rock Desert. And then when the crisis of No Place to Burn, the Burning Man came up, and they had already allied with Larry in, in the execution of the event, they said, hey, let's bring that statue, let's bring Larry's statue out there too and burn it, and, and that'll be part of what we do. That was part one in a conversation with Brian Doherty, author of This is Burning Man, which is available in paperback through Ben Bella. Be sure to listen to part two of this podcast coming next week, where we will continue our conversation and discuss the current legal disputes over the control of the Burning Man brand involving the Black Rock City LLC, Danger Ranger, and John Law. If you'd like more information about Brian, please click on our show notes at burncast.net. We'll conclude today's episode with a song produced by Doherty's musical band, Band Rehearsal, entitled The Burning Man Seduction Song. True. We can do this smooth and we can do this dirty. I choose to do it smooth. Do it dirty! My pals here are going to do it dirty for you after I do it smooth. Good. 
Maybe take me down to the water bar in my article. Or maybe we could ride my fuzzy bicycle. I got some powder here. Is a bitch you need or just emergency? Who cares? Let's try it. We can mix it with my Red Bull. Hey, girl, let's check out this with propane flame hanging from the crane. The guy who built the shit is totally my best friend. Watching the bunny's lane. I can remember the day when it was just on Bell's hey, By the way, I'm friends with Larry Harvey. And let me sing you my Burning Man Seduction song. My Burning Man Seduction song. Let me sing you my Burning Man Seduction song. Oh God, this table's grand. It's all about grief. All third world dead relief. Whatever man I'm rolling. Watching the furnace name. I remember the day when it was just a failure. Hey, by the way. I'm friends with Larry Harvey. Hey, girl, let's fuck right here. Can we be that bold? What do you mean you're cold? All right, good night. I'll take off with this chicken leather. Take you down to the bottom bar in my heart of car. Maybe we could ride my fuzzy bicycle. And we'll sing you. Burning man's addiction. Let me sing you. Alright. My burning man's seduction song. 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 Your girl then wings the tide, made it on the night, we go down on each other. Hop on little harvest bus, so maybe start a fuss, we turn out to my brother. Cook and bacon to the test of quill, so they didn't want to he's gonna just take cover. So Richard Lee, it's a burst TV, taking hold of me, I'm gonna pop, oh brother. Took the dogs in the heart of jungle, doing drugs in the heart and lungs. Chicken batteries, oh my god, I can't remember these words. Took the judge and partisan, took a log in the baker drum. And sex in the funky maze of the purple haze, it goes off the page. I got my goggles strapped on my dust mask on. I always carry water, and I never move alone. I'm always out in the dust, and it's who keeps the bone. And I keep that moving from the fire on my satellite phone. I got a solar-powered fan in my mic in my hand, and I tan. And we got an old sushi like we live in Japan. Got me an Alcoid 10, 22's on my van. And I got more EOIA than the face of the Man. At my school camp in the drinking with smoking we're getting real high I send my hoochies down the center camp to fetch me some chocolate I can spend so long from backwards We need to brag and if the poor lets a fool I'm gonna share the like a neon, get you screeching like a dirty, dirty bird. You can kick it in the dust, ain't no thing to me in the van. Girl, I wanna know what you're back to see. And I'll see you in my dirty man seduction song. Let me sing you. Burning man seduction song. Girl, let me take you down to the party bar and my party car. Or maybe we could ride my fuzzy bicycle. I got some powder here. It's a bitch you need. It's an emergency. Who cares? Let's try it. We can drink it with my Red Bull. Just stop to
spreading the flames about the art, culture, and community of Burning Man. For more information, please visit our website, burncast.net. To contact us, call the Burncast hotline at 206-350-1416 or leave us a message by clicking on the My Chingo recorder embedded at our website. You can also send us an email at burncast at gmail.com. A very special thanks to Lector of NoSpectators.com for hosting these podcasts.